Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. And now, a road report from Siemens Energy. The road to energy resilience is long and winding. But step by step, we're making progress. With renewable energy, with stronger grid technologies, hydrogen-ready gas turbines and e-fuels for hard-to-decarbonize industries. We are driving towards the destination every day. Step by step, we're getting there. Find out how at SiemensEnergy.com. Let's make tomorrow different today. Amazing sports stories coming soon to the BBC World Service. Nothing is ever quite as expected. Yep, it's wild. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Let's do this. Follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hello. We're used to hearing the stories of scientists who study the world as it is now. But what about the scientific study of the past? What can the past tell us about our future? My guest today is a geochemist whose research focuses on trying to understand climate change by looking at what was happening on our planet thousands of years ago. Gideon Henderson's work has taken him all around the world and to the remotest of places, the deepest oceans, the darkest caves, where he collects samples that contain radioactive isotopes that he can use as clocks to date past ice ages and other major climate events. As Professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Oxford, his work deals with some big and important questions, like humans' impact on the planet's carbon cycle, and therefore its climate, the health of our oceans, and finding new ways to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. As the Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, he also very much works on the present, at the intersection between the worlds of research and science policy. When he's not in Whitehall or his research lab in Oxford, he can be found on a boat in the South Atlantic or in a cave in Siberia. But I'm pleased to say he's joined me here today in the comfort of a BBC studio. Professor Gideon Henderson, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you for having me on. It's lovely to be here. Now, I imagine very few listeners would have been to some of the far-flung places you've experienced in your fieldwork. Could you give me an example somewhere that really stands out for you? I'm going to use the example of Siberia. And we work in the middle of nowhere, so we fly into Irkutsk, we drive along a road, uh, increasingly a gravel road, into the middle of nowhere, and then turn left off the road into <laughs> the tundra and into the forest and live in amongst the beech trees, cooking our borscht around the fire during the night, and in the daytime go um, into the caves that we're using to reconstruct the past climate. And these caves are beautiful in their own right, full of stalactites, but they're also an archive of the past, and that sort of sense of deep history around you in that beautiful setting is mm. very redolent. Mm. And, but, you know, you have to get to these places, you have to be there, right? You can only really put the samples that you work on in the lab into context if you go and see where those natural right, samples right. have come from in the cave or in the ocean or, or in the field site of your And they can be just as stunning as, as the, the caves themselves that you're visiting. They certainly can. And in the example of stalactites, um, first of all, I should say we're very careful about what we take from caves because these are right. these have grown over hundreds of thousands of years sometimes. But when you um, take them back to the lab and cut them open, they are... Um, sometimes exquisite, like the layers you get in an ice core or like mm, tree rings, mm, mm. Um, capturing the history sometimes over, well, certainly over thousands, sometimes tens or hundreds of thousands of years. Mm. As I mentioned in my introduction, much of your work relates to big themes like climate change. 
but you think climate change should actually be called something else. I think it's actually carbon change, not climate change. And climate, the fact that it has changed, that's the symptom of the fact that we have changed the carbon cycle. Our human behaviour has changed the carbon cycle. And now we need to change it back again. Well, Gideon Henderson, you were born in 1968 in Glasgow, but brought up in Maidenhead in, in Berkshire. And what did your parents do? So my mum was a primary school teacher. Um, in fact, she still teaches now in her retirement, she teaches Ukrainian um, students English. And my dad was a mineralogist. For most of my childhood, he worked at the Natural History Museum in London. On school holidays, when someone had to look after me, sometimes I'd go into the museum with him and be able to wander around the secret hidden bits of the museum behind the scenes. And it was quite um, inspirational. There's a lot of the Natural History Museum, for example, that isn't out on display for the public. I mean, that must have been quite exciting for you to see stuff that other kids wouldn't have seen. It definitely was. And to be honest, one of the excitements was he had a very early computer game on his mainframe computer, so I'd play that a bit. (laughs) But more inspirational for my future career, I would wander down the corridors and there'd suddenly be stuffed giraffes or elephants with tarpaulins over them to keep the dust off. Or there'd be a room full of all the antelope horns from Africa that they don't have room to display. And these are just impressive natural Incredible, yeah. And... Academically, I, I think it's probably fair to say that unlike a lot of scientists I meet who, who often become interest, interested in, in history later in life, you were really keen on the subject at school. One of the things I like about history in particular is that it is based on a series of facts and you can interpret those facts in different ways. And that's the way that a lot of science works as well. You have facts and you have to build a hypothesis or a, a theory around those facts. I gather, though, you were never top of the class at school, but you must have done pretty well because you uh, did get into Hertford College at Oxford University, where you then went on to study earth sciences. Mm-hmm. was persuaded by my parents, who were very supportive, less persuaded by my peer group, who somewhat ridiculed me and said, you're never going to get in, but I thought I'd give it a punt. So I was delighted when I proved them wrong and and got in, it gave me a certain um, inner confidence. And that college, Hartford College, was it the first Oxford to really drive to offer more places to applicants from state schools? I think in the year that I went, it was 87% state school attendance at Hartford College in particular. Mm -hmm. And they were so successful academically as a consequence that many other colleges emulated them in the future. So you did earth sciences, geology. I gather you found some aspects of the course rather dull, though. Yes, uh, I hesitate to um, to describe it in detail because <laughs> the people who taught me will know, but um, <laughs> I found that the more rote learning aspects of, of geology at that time to be pretty tedious. So learning fossil names, learning to identify endless minerals didn't really um, excite me. Mm. But when we got onto stuff that was more to do with the processes by which the earth worked, that was what really um, gave me a buzz scientifically. Mm. I gather a lot of geology students, you know, the place to go for fieldwork is the Isle of Arran in Scotland. That's somewhere, I think that's a rites of passage, isn't it? Nearly every (laughs) geologist when training goes to the Isle of Arran. It's an amazing cross-section of the UK's geology all in one little tiny island. So you can see the whole history of the island there from when it was a desert to when we were underwater and the rocks are made in a marine setting. And what sort of things would you have been doing there or seen? Some of the things that really live with me from from that us where you could see individual processes from the ancient past captured in the rock record so one example is these things called fulgurites and fulgurites are fossilized lightning strikes so if you're somewhere like a desert when uh, there's a storm passing over the lightning has to land somewhere it lands on the sand and all that energy from the lightning is goes into the sand and it fuses the sand into a cone of glass and you can see these cones of glass mm. fulgurites in the rock record 
250 million year old lightning strikes and it just takes you back into this there was a desert here 250 million years ago and there was a storm in the desert, and you can see it captured here in in the rock so what do these fulgurites actually look like they're about this round i'm not going to work on radio <laughs> <laughs> well gideon let's go back again after you graduated you took a year out but your heart was set on doing a phd you you didn't get into your first choice of edinburgh and instead went to cambridge what was your research project there? Really what I discovered a bit of um, intuition towards and, and I really started to enjoy is working with a series of, of isotopes called the uranium series isotopes. And those give us a whole range of different clocks and rate metres that are built into nature, which is mm. very powerful. Well, and we're going to talk about this uh, uh, in a little while. But I gather during your PhD, you published several research papers, but they earned you an amusing nickname later. They did. I, I published three <laughs> um, primary papers from my PhD, and they all reached sort of somewhat negative results. They said, well, this doesn't change, or you know, that stays the same, or this one doesn't really quite work. Which is just as important in science as positive it, results. It, <laughs> is and they were all in areas where they were picked up and people needed to use those results right but when i went on to do my postdoctoral research um i worked with someone called wally broker who's a real um god of the field and widely known as the guy who coined the term global warming mm. and he christened me dr no when i turned up because my <laughs> phd had been so much about these rather negative results <laughs> well with your phd under your belt you headed off to uh, new york columbia university where you carried on with your work on the on the uranium isotopes but this time to answer a big question in geology namely what controls the earth's ice age cycle we've known for quite a long time more than 100 years really that there's something to do with the earth's orbit sets the time scale of the ice ages so about every 100,000 years uh, we go through a cycle between warm conditions and then into a cold ice age where ice sheets come much further south down to, to close to london and, and around about new york so we know that's influenced by the Earth's orbit, but what we didn't know is how those small orbital changes link to the actual process of making ice ages. And one of the ways to test the linkage is to really understand the timing. But dating the records we have of ice ages was proving to be very difficult. We didn't know the timing of those changes. I spent quite a lot of work in my postdoctoral years really trying to develop new tools to get a handle on those, that timing issue. Mm. So when are we due the next ice age? Well, we would probably be due another ice age in a thousand years or two if we hadn't messed up the climate system so badly. And we're now well out of the normal carbon dioxide range that's seen naturally during the ice age cycle. And we're into uncharted territory for the last million years or so. Mm. Okay. well, you met your now wife of 23 years, Catherine, uh, when you were both undergraduate students at Oxford. But now you're in New York. uh, She was in London. There's an ocean between you. Right. That must have been tough we'd been friends for a while but we we um, got together um, when I was living on the other side of the Atlantic from her and actually to start with it was quite fun because we would save up some of our um, our leave and we would think about the cool things to do in our city and when our partner came over we'd do all those cool things together so we were living the sort of nylon life the New York and London alternating across the pond course not very good for my carbon emissions and also not very good for a sustained relationship and we did decide eventually that we should co-locate and, and come back to the uk so so after five years in the us you did uh, you were drawn back to uk because you were offered a permanent job this is 1999 as a lecturer at your alma mater at oxford and once you came back you and Catherine got married you now have two sons isaac and jonah but what was it like coming back to oxford this time as a lecturer as a teacher 
as it was quite nerve-wracking getting the job. I had to interview in a lecture theatre, the same lecture theatre that I had had my lectures in, and in the audience were some of the lecturers who had lectured me, and it was a complete table-turning, so even though I was quite confident (laughs) as a scientist then, it did bring back some flashbacks. Um, (laughs) Well, you've you've been there ever since. You moved up the academic ladder by 2013. You became head of the Department of Earth Sciences there. But it's been your interaction with students that you say you've always found so rewarding it's probably true that for most scientists unless you discover really big things your papers um, just become part of the um the oeuvre and they, and they fade into the general scientific knowledge and and it's sometimes difficult to see what it is that you've really done that's going to make a difference but one thing you can really point to and say well this has made a difference is is your education of the mm. next generation of scientists and your nurturing and mentoring of them it's an important legacy isn't mm. it yeah yeah Okay, Gideon, let's get stuck into some science. I guess a good place to start might be for you to explain your field of geochemistry. Well, the clue's in the name. It's the chemistry of the planet, so we look at how chemical cycles operate. Some geochemists look at hot stuff like volcanoes, but I look at um, low-temperature processes, so pretty much the things that happen on the surface of the Earth. Uh, You've already mentioned your use of naturally occurring radioactive isotopes in your work. Can you expand a little bit more on what these are and how they work? I can. Um, like other elements, uranium has a number of different forms, a number of different isotopes, and two of those isotopes have been around since the birth of the solar system. They've got a long enough half-life, to take long enough to decay, that they've been around since the birth of the solar system. Those uranium isotopes are distributed across the whole of our Earth, so they're in everything at very low concentrations, nothing to be worried about. And because they're radioactive, when they decay, they lead to another isotope of thorium, And that itself is radioactive and that decays. And there's a whole series of isotopes that come from these uranium isotopes. Um, And they have different half-lives and different chemistry. And they're built in to the natural world as a set of clocks and rate meters. When you were in the US, you were using these to track the ice ages and when they happened. I was. I was using the the fact that um, thorium is very insoluble. And when um, thorium is made from uranium, it's completely removed from seawater... And therefore, um, when something grows in seawater, like a coral or um, a, a shell, it grows with lots of uranium from the seawater, but no thorium. And then you can watch the thorium gradually grow back in and form from the radioactive decay of uranium. And that gives you a, a, a good clock, which you can mm. date the, the coral with. It's such a neat idea. <laughs> so by looking to the past, we can better understand the processes that are happening on the Earth now. Yeah, and that's the, the key thing. There's no direct analogue um, in the past. We can't go back and say, this is what the world will look like in the future. But we can go back and say, well, what, what were the processes that are Im- important? Mm. I've always loved the old Danish proverb that prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. That's true. And it's, <laughs> we talk about hindcasting as a way of looking back into the past and saying, can we predict the past? But actually, we yeah. can also measure it. And right. As an empirical scientist, you can go and work out what happened in the past. You can't go and measure the future. It. Yeah, that's the You problem. can't yet do that, no. <laughs> a few years ago, you studied the history of permafrost in Siberia. Permafrost basically frozen soil, right? If the average temperature throughout the year is less than zero, at some depth in the soil, maybe a metre or so, the soil freezes and it stays frozen. And it's actually like a bit of a refrigerator. Dead stuff that has died from the summer mm. falls into that frozen layer and accumulates, so it captures a load of carbon. But is it true that permafrost around the planet contains more carbon than the atmosphere? 
It does. About twice as much carbon as the atmosphere. But the ocean contains many more times than that. So there's a mm. lot of carbon that's not in the atmosphere. Right. And that's why studying the carbon cycle is so important, is to understand how things move. So what was the aim of this particular study of the permafrost in, in, in Siberia? We know that the planet now is getting warmer because of human activity. We need to understand the relationship between warming of the, the planet and permafrost melting and releasing its carbon so we were trying to do that, but it's difficult to do now because it's changing so slowly. So we used the past as an archive, we went back, so then we could understand at what different temperatures in the past did the permafrost melt and how much of it melted, how far towards the Arctic Ocean did we see that permafrost loss. You mentioned earlier that your fieldwork in Siberia involved going into these caves and taking stalagmites. This is part of this study, is it? It's the stalagmites that tell you something about the permafrost. What's true about stalactites and stalactites and things that form in caves is that they need water to form and of course when it's permafrosted when it's permanently below zero there is no water it's ice so you can't make stalactites mm. so when you go into a cave that today is below zero it's in the area where there's ice and you find these wonderful rooms full of stalactites you know that these reflect times in the past when the permafrost had melted and there was liquid water at that latitude so you take these stalagmite samples back to your lab in Oxford. How do you then analyse them? So first of all, we cut it open. We see the sequence of layers that are inside. And then from those layers, we take samples. So if we want to date it, we'll extract the uranium and thorium from it. And we'll do that in a clean lab environment. And then we take that thorium and we run it on a mass spectrometer. And we measure the different isotopes of it to work out exactly how much thorium there is compared to the amount of uranium. And that gives us an age. And this is something you can plot against temperature. We have pretty good records of what's happened to ocean temperature in the Atlantic and in the Arctic Ocean. And we can compare the temperature of the, the planet through the last 400,000 years or so with the periods when we know permafrost melted and see how far north uh, the permafrost melted at, at different temperatures. What was it that you found? So what we found is that the, the permafrost didn't retreat northwards, so it didn't melt very much. And when we warmed a little bit, so we warmed up to about one and a half degrees in the past, but when we went beyond that one and a half degrees limit, we saw much more melting of the permafrost. It went much further north with much more carbon release as a consequence. So it's another one of the multiple pieces of evidence that demonstrate that as you go beyond warming of about one and a half degrees, you start to see quite irreversible and substantial changes. And, and that's what we're seeing beginning now. So we're starting to see a little bit of the permafrost melting mm. at the margin now. Mm. If we were to warm to two degrees, we'd see much more substantial mm, melting mm. if the past is a good clue to the future, which it very often is. Presumably when you go to some of these remote places to get your samples, you can't just walk in and take them. This is a, a big team effort, but we also work very closely with people in the local setting. So in the permafrost example, we worked with a local caving club mm. in Kursk and the local university to so make sure that we really had... Um, support of and involvement of the uh, the local people there. And I suppose Siberia's out of bounds now. Uh, has that impacted your work? It is, sadly. And I'd love to go back there and do fieldwork, but now's not the right time mm. to do that for obvious reasons. It's very frustrating, obviously a shame, when geopolitical issues can affect scientific research. I mean, particularly the sort of research that you do that is meant to be for the benefit of all humankind. It is. Uh, thankfully, those are the exceptions, not the rules. And in yeah. general, especially on climate science, the international community works pretty closely together. Well, I want to talk a little bit about a, a big international collaboration where this has worked very well. Another major theme of your work, Gideon Henderson, is ocean chemistry. 
and one that focuses not on carbon cycle, but what's called the iron cycle in the oceans. So in some parts of the ocean, there just isn't enough iron to enable life to flourish. And we were trying to understand really for the first time what drove the cycle of iron in the ocean and how much of that iron reaches the surface and, and why, what makes it get there and therefore what controls life. Mm. And so you started this huge global programme called Geotraces. Why does this project matter so much? It's just a fundamental thing that we don't understand and that always makes your brain itch a bit. You want mm. to go and understand it. But there's also the fact that uh, life in the ocean consumes carbon dioxide it's where we get lots of our protein from trying to understand what supports that life and how it might change in the future requires understanding of these metals being at sea for for, for many weeks at a time with no land in sight it might be some people's idea of hell i mean when you were out on these uh, voyages what, what was it like I've done quite a lot of my research in um in the south atlantic in the roaring 40s where um you quite often get really big um storms and great big seas and the ship almost feels like a surfboard just um, bobbing up and down on these great big waves as they pass by <laughs> the ship, which are, are, to me is a, a dreadalizing. It's like being on a roller coaster. Um, some other people really don't enjoy that. But other days you wake up and it's just a mill pond flat. So it's very changeable and that's partly what makes it such an interesting experience. I'd like us to turn to another key role you currently have as Chief Scientific Advisor and Director General for Science and Analysis at DEFRA. What prompted you to want to move across from research into policy? Many of my colleagues at the time, my scientific academic colleagues, thought I was mad. Why would you leave the bench? Why would you leave the field and go and work in, in Westminster? But for me, that, that process of bringing science into the policy space was, was really stimulating. I wanted to do more of that. You had quite a baptism of fire, didn't you? Because you started in 2019, and as we all know, a little-known virus from China caused quite a lot of trouble just six months later. It did. That virus came, incidentally, um, from Wuhan. And Wuhan is the place where I've done quite a lot of work in caves around that area to try and reconstruct the monsoon. So I felt like I had something of a, a connection. I'm still in touch with people from that city. But from my perspective in DEFRA, I was a few months into the job when the regular meeting of all the chief scientific advisors that happens weekly started to really talk about this new disease that was being mm. seen in the in the Far East what we were going to do with uh, this disease to keep it out of the UK. We also wanted to work out ways that we could help with the measurement and the tracking of this virus. Mm. And so you, you oversaw the establishment of a, a wastewater monitoring programme for COVID, in effect looking at sewage to monitor levels of the virus in the population and hopefully spot outbreaks. We pretty rapidly set up a, a sequence of sampling stations that captured about 70% of the population of the UK. And quite a simple thing to do, you know, everyone goes to the toilet, right? So. Every, everyone goes to the toilet, as you say. Well, Gideon, another area you got involved in was gene editing. You're instrumental in the new legislation that allows the development of gene edited crops here in England. Just explain to me what exactly that's changed. For example, are gene edited vegetables being sold in supermarkets already? No, they're not. And this change has happened only quite recently. And in fact, although it's now legal to pursue this uh, research into the uh, marketplace, we don't have all the regulation in place yet to allow that to actually happen. That will roll out in the next year. And we might expect to see some of these uh, products on our supermarket shelves in the next three to five years. I guess it's important to, to get you to explain what gene editing actually is. Gene editing enables very precise snips and changes to the genetic sequence of individual species and it enables us to therefore do things that are very similar to the things we've already done through traditional breeding but more quickly more precisely and many more of them and the eu doesn't allow gene editing for crops yet 
But when we left the EU, that changed. The UK had long been frustrated about the EU law on gene editing and wanted to look at it again. So, so what are the advantages then of gene editing for agriculture? The advantages are that it will give us crops that are more resistant to pests, and more resistant to diseases, and therefore we can use less chemicals um, in our agricultural system with less damage to biodiversity. It'll also give us crop species more quickly that are tolerant to climate change, to extreme heat or to, or to drought conditions or growing in wet conditions. And it'll enable us to develop foodstuffs that either have nutrients that we want more of or take out some of the things that we might have an allergy against or we might find harmful. Some people will, understandably, I guess, worry about eating food that has been gene edited. How do you persuade them that it's safe? We made a really big effort to talk to people on different sides of that argument, different sides of the debate, understand the science as fully as we possibly could and to make sure that we um, establish uh, regulation and legislation that is um, safe for the environment and safe for people. In 2013, you were elected a Fellow of the Royal Society and, and one of the things you've done there is to produce a report on, on greenhouse gas removal from the atmosphere and, and, and storing it. There are lots of different ideas on, on the table, but it's not clear yet which of them is going to be the most effective. One of them that we know is effective and we're doing a lot of is growing trees. Trees alone will not solve the problem and we have to probably use quite a wide range of different tools if we're going to mm. achieve the greenhouse gas removal we need. And you've looked at something called enhanced weathering. Tell me what that is. If you expose rocks to the atmosphere, many of them are unstable and they will gradually um, weather, they'll gradually chemically alter and that process consumes carbon dioxide very, very slowly, mm. naturally. If we intentionally take those rocks and we grind them up quite small and scatter them onto our agricultural fields, they have the potential to actually add some additional nutrients to possibly help the crops and help the biology but they also will accelerate that consumption of co2 by natural processes and that could be one way that we could draw some more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and do we know whether this would work and what are, what are the challenges so we know that it works at some level the question is can we accelerate it enough to be meaningful so that it really is a significant amount of carbon and also what are the environmental implications of doing that so we need to be mm. sure that adding ground up rock to our fields isn't going to stop us from growing the crops or growing the healthy crops that we absolutely depend on. Well in June this year for the first time the world did temporarily breach that 1.5 degree temperature rise globally. It's become this key number that we know is the threshold beyond which it gets really difficult to stop the most dangerous effects of climate change. How do you stay positive? I think I stay positive because we know we have solutions and we also know that there's an increasing public desire to see change. I'm also someone who doesn't really believe that a particular line in the sand is do or die. I guess the point is that if you do draw a line in the sand and then you go over it, people will say, oh, well, it's too late. We can't do anything and give up. I have a fear both about going over that line, but also the sense of fatalism about the fact that yeah. you get close to it. You might just say, well, we're going over the line anyway. I might as well take my extra holiday or drive a bigger car. Or it's better if we try and um, give people hope about our ability to limit it. Well, I know you're a keen cyclist with, with a daily route from Paddington Station. When you get off the train from Oxford, you pick up your bike and you cycle down to your office in Whitehall. It's a lovely route. You go across Hyde Park through a wonderful avenue of trees and then down past St James Park and past Buckingham Palace and past... 
uh, Westminster Abbey. And I guess it gives you time to think? It gives me some time to think. Well, but when but you're not, not looking long. out for the traffic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gideon Henderson, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you very much. Do you ever feel a bit overwhelmed when you check the news on your phone first thing in the morning? It's everything everywhere all at once. I'm Hannah. I'm the presenter of What in the World from the BBC World Service. We're the podcast making sense of the world around you so you can feel better about what's happening and understand what in the world is going on. Net zero means we're not adding any more greenhouse gases to the total in the atmosphere. Just search for What in the World wherever you get your BBC podcasts.